listening to the Stephen McGarvey Podcast. Here, one of the things that we talk to people about is that what enables us to differentiate ourselves is the ability to give others the experience of being understood. Your brain is an association machine. It connects things together. Mind is a terrible thing to waste. Now here's your host, Stephen McGarvey. Welcome back to another interesting, fascinating, in fact, conversation with Richard Stone. We left the audience, Richard, hanging, uh, dangling, uh, by saying that you had a phone call from President Mandela. Now, here's my question. Was it a phone call from the president directly or somebody setting up a phone call for the president to have some time with you to chat? What was the, who called you? The reality was it was someone in his office. Um, It was Saturday afternoon, which was sort of unexpected insofar as you don't expect any office to be working. Um, let alone that of the former president of South Africa. Um, It was around a time when there had been a lot of sort of fake news stories where um, famous people, members of the royal family, uh, pop stars had been um, trapped somewhat, deceived um, by uh, journalists ringing them pretending to be someone else and they were sort of rather embarrassing exposés of certain things. So I was very cautious and um, I asked quite a few questions about this but um, even so it was totally unexpected and um, I was very hesitant. So when you say hesitant, do you think it's a crank call, it's a fake call, it's a... Yeah, I was very sceptical. Sceptical, okay. Very sceptical. But then again, when Mr. Mandela, well, the, the question was, would I um, take a call from Mr. Mandela? So I said yes. Well, what else are you going to say when the president, somebody yeah, but from I the president's office But calls. I didn't know it was president. <laughs> it could be some brilliant um, impressionist. Yes. And um, if I thought that for a moment, that very famous voice of his was, 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 was convincing. But there was something about um, the manner in which he was approaching me to ask me to undertake his portrait. And um, of course it was true, um, because things happened. You know, I was flown out um, to South Africa to actually paint his portrait over, I think, six or seven sittings. I think it's absolutely marvelous. But it was the surreal call really the fact you know it was pouring with rain it was Saturday afternoon um, I turned the radio off to take the call all these sort of things because I'm in the studio yeah. um, messing around with paint and stuff and so um, it was tremendously exciting um, I, I know in my career I've had some pretty amazing phone calls but this had beaten all of those hands down um, Why? Because he had been top of my wish list as a person to actually paint. Um, We have all known of the extraordinary career he had, the 27 years in in prison, um, the countless photographs. And I just thought, here is a man, if I could ever get next to, to paint his portrait, what a fascinating exercise it would be. And lucky me, I got the call. Would I undertake it? 
And why would painting his portrait be a fascinating exercise? You've painted royalty, you've painted celebrities, you've painted... What about President Mandela um, put him up there on your list? Um, the main reason, from the countless photographs that are taken of him, was, the, was his face. Um, I have never seen, encountered anyone who appears to have had their entire life's experience etched into their features. And Nelson Mandela was, um, to me, a perfect subject to paint, let alone this extraordinary backstory. But of course it is the backstory that has made the man. Um, remember, I, up until this point, had only been familiar with photographs. So getting to know him in the course of those sittings gave me a chance to actually begin to really understand the metal of the man and what an extraordinary human person he was. So tell us a bit about that first face-to-face -face interaction, first face-to-face -face meeting. Um, it was interesting insofar I wasn't prepared for the fact that he wanted to sit one side of his vast desk and wanted me to sit the other. Um, there had to have been at least five feet between us. Um, clearly it made him feel a lot more comfortable having a sense of distance. Uh, it was troublesome insofar as no matter what topic of conversation I brought to the table, um, there wasn't the, the rapport that I was looking for, made all the more difficult because he wouldn't look at me. And I'm used to people looking at me. So I'm having to think, what I'm seeing is still part of the man. It's not at this stage helping me to draw a likeness because he's not allowing me to get close enough to him. So if I'm uh, using my decades of painting portraits and drawing on that experience of trying to establish a trust that someone feels comfortable, not just in my presence, but in the very fact that they're going to be in a room with someone who is observing them very closely, um, I had to rescue the situation to um, draw attention to me. I, I needed to look at the man and he needed to look at me. So back to those social skills of trying to find a common subject and things like this, and this is where um, having an illustrious past, if you want, of painting other presidents, prime ministers, prima donnas, the royal family and the like, of finding people we had in common. Um, the, um, uh, my best card was having painted Archbishop Tutu's portrait because I knew Archbishop Tutu was a very close friend. It helped enormously that um, we were able to um, uh, have a very light conversation about the personality of the man. 
that and helped. You said he didn't look at you. Were there mm-hmm. times in these conversations, for example, that you're talking about now, were there times in those conversations where he was more comfortable looking at you? Did he look to the side of you? What, what was that dynamic of he didn't look at me? And was that something that uh, was variable from time to time or something that built over time? It was very fleeting to begin with. Um, his gaze never settled on anything specific other than it wasn't going to be at me but knowing um, that I was now talking about people he was familiar with there was a a point of contact where the natural thing would be to talk to the person who was engaged in a conversation that you you could appreciate and, and understand so back to that common ground that we talked about uh, before, finding something, and in this case it was someone else that you had done a portrait of, that allowed him to relate to you in, a, in an easier way. Definitely. And building on that, um, he would ask how Elizabeth was. And of course I'm having to think, who is Elizabeth? But you see, in the context, I immediately thought, oh, he's got the name of my wife wrong because I'm married to Rhonda yes and and then I'm thinking now in his circle who in his position who could he possibly call Elizabeth oh my goodness the Queen of England okay (laughs) and so I'm right in there and saying um, I haven't seen Her Majesty for a while but my understanding she's in good health (laughs) And, and why was he comfortable calling Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth there was something you mentioned in your talk that pops back into my head that was quite entertaining with regards to his response around that or, or why he was comfortable calling Elizabeth Elizabeth or Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth. Um, I don't know if we have ever known the origin of that, but he doesn't, he's a man that comes across as not actually being intimidated by any social position. I think he. I'm probably being unfair that to say that he he knew that he was a much revered person. His whole um, presence had an air of greatness about it. I mean, this this was one of the most um, uh, intimidating aspects of this entire commission. How was I to capture greatness? Um, one was aware of it, but I think it's something that he has used of commanding such huge respect and it is quite possible I know for a fact that the Queen calls him Nelson that there might have been a meeting if you want of great personalities yes. that he would call her Elizabeth so she would if call you can call me Nelson I'm going to call you Elizabeth <laughs> that, that could easily have been that <laughs> oh that's funny and that uh, it, it's it's interesting that he's got it sounds like he's got a very good sense of humor as well he de- definitely has that yeah. and over the course of those early batch of sittings so there would have been three of a hour, hour and a half or whatever um, we, we we would talk he told me that he um, painted and did drawings and next sitting he would bring some in to see um, I would show him what I was doing in my sketchbook quite deliberately 
in order that he could understand how difficult it was from my side of the desk to not be able to look into his face. And so it became, if you want, a very um, obvious solution that uh, we should move closer to each other and in a better light. But of course all this comes about of after, oh, I don't know, three hours of conversation or whatever, uh, which is quite a long time to spend with someone when I'm only focused on them and there's nothing, nothing else in the room for him to really look at other than me. But because there were, if you want, um, uh, names in the conversations that we were having that he knew he could ask a personal question about. Um, I had painted several portraits of uh, Margaret Thatcher and um, he had understood that or received reports that she hadn't been at all well and could I take a personal message um, back to the UK from him. Now already we're beginning to um, forge a relationship um, he is spending more time looking at me. Um, he's entrusting me with something very personal. I have now um, drawn my chair much closer to him in a much better light closer to the window and um, if our knees weren't touching because we're facing each other they were close to touching and as the sittings would develop and I would spend longer looking at him and the fact that he felt comfortable looking into my eyes I I then was given the real privilege and I don't know whether it has ever happened to anyone else but he was able to talk more freely and more openly and I know it sounds a bit of a cliche really but I really do sense um, the special circumstance that was created in those sittings he he did open a, a little window for me to peer through to look at his essence his his soul in a way which was very brave of him but he'd seen how the picture was being constructed and saw why I had to do what I did why I needed to do it in order to paint a portrait that wasn't just superficially like him but actually felt like him as well. Um, a lot of people get very um, disconcerted with what an artist will say. Um, there's this sort of myth that an artist has a third eye and can look into and capture someone's spirit. But with the likes of Mandela who had a genuine I think Golden Heart. He was a very giving man. Well, we know about this extraordinary ability he had, not just extending the hand of friendship, but a man that extended a hand to forgive. Um, all those years of in jail, of the, the being in solitary confinement like that, not being able to talk. Um, you could understand that he was such a private person and therefore perhaps was very protective of that privacy. And so for him then to spend extended time to look at me and look into my eyes um, was so special 
those those moments will stay with me forever. And in the talk that you've referred to, um, I say that people often ask me, do I have um, a favorite portrait that I've painted? And my answer has been, well, actually, I have a, a favorite part of a portrait. And that part that is probably, I think, the most meaningful part of any portrait that I've ever painted are Nelson Mandela's eyes. And I remember uh, sitting in the audience listening to your talk, and when you put that portrait up, or a picture of that portrait, um, that's engraved in my mind forever, just the expression that you captured in the eyes, and him looking at you, obviously, who's painting it, and it's, it's almost like you've captured the essence of the emotion and who the spirit and who this person is. It's, it's almost like it, it comes to life. It's like he's there. Do you know, that's very kind of you to say that because I don't know. Um, I've jokingly said all I do is push paint around on the canvas because I, I can't set out to paint that. You don't even know if you've seen it, but it is something that sort of works in those very rare moments in a sitting. Um, there, there aren't steps I need to take to get to that point other than I want someone to look at me and to trust me. So you, sorry. No, I, I was just going to say, it's interesting when we, you know, we work with sales forces, we work with marketing departments, we work with a range of different people, and we always say that rapport is the foundation of, of influence, of trust, of, and when we have rapport, and we have it consistently over time, that it inevitably, it inevitably builds trust. And it, it sounds like the desk was there at the beginning, the lack of eye contact, and essentially a lack of trust and given his background and what he'd experienced, uh, rightly so. Absolutely. And with those sittings over time and with you uh, having that rapport consistently over each sitting with him, that it enabled him to, it gave him the freedom to know it was safe to trust you. Correct. And I think that's a really, really key thing for anyone that's listening, is that if we have that ability to establish that rapport and we do it consistently, that it automatically, the byproduct of that is trust. Yes. And, and so you were able to have him look at you and capture what you wanted to capture in your final portrait of him. But I didn't know that I'd actually got it um, until I think weeks if not months after the picture was was complete. The, um, the sittings are very intense insofar as uh, I'm actually having to paint and as I said earlier um, I, there's not a formula to this. Um, you don't know if you've captured it at that moment. It's only looking back when there's been enough distance. Uh, you're talking about, with your expertise, um, what message you, you give to the people that you talk to. Um, I like to think I have a message through my portraits to people because I want them to feel that they're in the presence of Nelson Mandela or whatever right. it is. Um, and um, maybe you paint in words with a much broader brush than I do um, I'm sort of doing my best to push a bit of paint around <laughs> to, you know, you laugh at that, but you, that's all I do. You say that so humbly, <laughs> and you produce these pieces of uh, art, these portraits that make you feel like you're in the presence of the person. And that, that to me is, is magical. 
it's terribly kind of you to say that, but do remember, um, so many of the people that I paint, and I suppose Nelson Mandela um, has to be quite possibly the most famous I've painted, he was such a larger-than-life man. He didn't need to make a lot of noise to be noticed. He was one of those rare individuals that really did have an aura. And it's back to what I said at the beginning, um, how do you capture greatness? I have no idea how you capture greatness. But it was, it was a gradual process that he trusted me enough that he was able to, if you want, open a window onto his soul that I could see something of his spirit. But I didn't know I was seeing that spirit at the time. But there are feelings, it's intuition, it's all these things that um, my skill is, perhaps, um, uh, being observant enough, being perceptive enough to pick up on opportunities that I'm being offered at the time and being able to um, observe, harness my observations and move the paint around in a way that it can resonate with other people. It's a tough thing to do and I'm never quite sure that I've got it until I get a reaction from other people. Speaking of reactions from other people, how did President Mandela react when he saw the final portrait? Well, in a way, I didn't expect, because he didn't say anything. And I was slightly thrown by that. But it, this was probably the second portrait he'd ever had painted, and probably the one that he... Hmm. Remember, he asked me to paint it. and. It was something he wanted me to paint, and therefore he was placing an enormous amount of trust in me that I could pull off something that had some value that represented him. He wanted to sell it to raise funds for his foundation. So it had to be an aspect of the man that clearly um, had to be an image that other people would recognize. So the iconic look had to be there. But reflecting back on what I've just said, it needed to capture something of the spirit of the man. Um, I don't know whether he felt that I'd got it. But if you're confronted with something that's more than just a superficial likeness of yourself, remember for the most part, m all people see a holiday snaps. But when it is a, um, a portrait that's being constructed from countless detailed observations that are put together and build a picture. So it's not capturing like a camera does of you in a nanosecond in time, but it has a, if you want, a depth of expression that maybe even feels like you, to be confronted by that probably is quite daunting. And you do, one doesn't know what to say. 
um, other than the silence of him just carefully considering the picture. And he, we know he's great, has given great speeches, but he had said, you know, I will fall into lapses of silence. 27 years in jail meant I didn't have many people to talk to. His reaction of being silent shouldn't have come as a surprise. But he looked up from the canvas directly into my face and said, thank you. Thank you. And that was it. And coming from him and where we started with this conversation with him being unwilling to look into your eyes and gazing off to the side or, or fleeting glances to that almost sounds like the highest praise that you could get is him looking straight into your eyes and thanking you. Absolutely that. And it, yeah. could I be so bold as to ask, so you said this uh, painting was to raise money for his, his charity, his uh, foundation. Um, how much did this painting go for? A million US dollars. A million US dollars. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. And I, I, I know he not only was a, an incredible man, a great president, but had a real heart for South Africa and for lifting up others that were in less fortunate situations. Um, you've traveled a lot. You've, we've talked about uh, king, queens and, and royalty and, and all sorts of different people. Uh, you've been all over the world. You've flown all over the world. Have there been any situations that you've found yourself in that you felt at risk or in danger? I mean, we're, we're in a situation even now at, at sea on this cruise ship with this coronavirus where things are up in the air and there's all kinds of reports that we've been denied entry into and we wouldn't have had this opportunity to have these conversations uh, or to have, have developed this friendship that we have um, without all of the change that we've had to have the flexibility to go through. Where have you found yourself where you felt outside of your comfort zone? Uh, is that something that we can chat about in another conversation? Yes, and I'm happy to share the experience. It happened in San Francisco. San Francisco of all places. Correct. Well, I look forward to our next chat and hearing what the encounter was in San Francisco. Life-changing. Thank you so much, Richard.